The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for March 4th, 2022. Your old pal, Justin Robert Young, here in Austin, Texas. Before we go any further, I got some bad news, some bad personal news. Yes, what a beautiful, beautiful streak it was. The Beta Beguiler, the Delta Dodger, the Cron Confounder, but... All good things must come to an end. I don't know where and I don't know how, but this morning I tested positive for the vid. I feel fine. A little bit of a sore throat, some general fatigue, but I'm going to power through this lickety split. But, you know, maybe this is a good reminder that, you know, uh, it's still around. It's a shame that I got it when nobody was caring about it anymore. But uh, uh, still, there we go. Uh, um, It's still around. Just be aware. Uh, Let me just say this again. If you ain't got the vaccine, consider it. Because I'm sure that this would be a a worse situation had I not gotten it. So there we go. Let's get into what really matters. Uh, I want to expand on something that I said during the Wednesday show about Joe Biden's State of the Union, specifically why I now don't believe that he is going to run for president again in 2024. We are also going to take a deep dive into the new federal government response to COVID. There are now official federal guidelines that... Many blue state governors have been pushing for it for a while. What are they? We're going to go through them. And we are going to be joined by somebody that that uh, I think is a real cool dude, and I really like his podcast. His name is David McRaney. He does a show called You Are Not So Smart, and we are going to talk about the science behind tribalism and the logical ways that our brain works and tricks ourselves into believing that we need to be as dialed in to politics as we are. It's a fascinating conversation and a little bit more rooted in reality than than uh, Wednesday's show. I know Wednesday's show for, for, some, for some of you guys was a little too out there, but uh, uh, I'm glad you guys liked it. I think that this is a little bit more science-minded. You guys are going to really, really dig it. All that. But first. Now, I want to expand on something that I said on the Wednesday show. I am now of the belief that Joe Biden will not run for president again in 2024. Up till right now, I have said the opposite. Mostly because I don't think that somebody who works their entire life to achieve something gives it up when they have a chance to keep going. Fact of the matter is that presidents run for re-election and they usually win. So, why did I start thinking this about Joe Biden now? 
Well, it wasn't the verbal flubs that led me to the conclusion, although they were legion. You can just go ahead and ask the Iranian people who, according to Joe Biden, will uh, not have their hearts won by the invading Russian army. Obviously, he meant Ukrainians, which is something that Kamala Harris visibly muttered uh, right behind him. Nor was it Biden's energy levels that waned in one of the shortest State of the Union speeches of the last few decades. No, the thing that makes me think Joe Biden is a lame duck was his legislative priorities. Sure, he ran through some of the bills that we'd been told over the last six months were life or death decisions, but he didn't linger on them. Hell, he didn't even bring up Build Back Better, which was the centerpiece of his speech to the Joint Houses last year. He spent more time talking about funding the police than he did talking about voting rights. But the stuff that he spent the most time on were very safe, very bipartisan topics. Opioids, vets, cancer. It's not that these aren't noble pursuits. They are. They're the kind of causes that Joe Biden, the senator, loved to champion unassailable bills that make friends. And in another universe, if Joe Biden came out of the gates with this and said unequivocally, look, I am here to get things done. We're going to knock out everything we agree on before we get to the stuff that I think we are going to disagree on. Then he could have done that strategy confidently. But he didn't. Joe Biden is not a senator anymore. He's a president. And a year ago, he was calling for $6 billion worth of social programs that would radically redefine America's relationship with its government. Now, he's comparatively begging for signatures on a Hallmark card. And it matters that he asked for the big stuff and failed first. Because again, if this had been his plan from the beginning, then he could have built up a winning streak, but he didn't. Now, a lot of this is political reality. Joe Biden did what the progressives had begged uh, any Democratic president to do since Obama. Go big. Don't pre-negotiate. And considering we are now at a point where he didn't even mention Build Back Better at the State of the Union, we can say confidently that that failed miserably. His approval ratings are in Trump territory without an international conspiracy and special prosecutor to blame it on. And beyond that, he's done the one thing that you can never do in politics. Admit it. He sucks right now and he's acting like it. And that is a problem. Because when you're the president, you have the biggest target on your back. You also wield the biggest stick. If you are showing more of your vulnerability than your formidableness, then you will only get more abuse, both from the other side and your own allies. It's why presidents need to act totally confident as if they are in their own world. Everything is about to turn around when you're the president on the skids. You're going to remember everybody who left you when things were at their darkest. 
So let's go back to the safe legislative targets. They are what lame duck presidents do when they don't have the stroke to push something bolder. Reminder, all power is future power. And when you don't have future power and everybody knows it, you ask for the things that are easy. Which brings me back to the beginning. On Tuesday, that felt like a lame duck state of the union. It felt like the Biden team believed that they aren't going to see their numbers rebound by the midterms. And at that point, the Sharks will be circling. So why don't I think he's going to run for president? It's not because I don't think that Biden will not believe he can do it. I think he will. But he's going to be, you know, in a hard position convincing his own party that he's the way to go. And it only takes one person to say that the emperor has no clothes for things to start really falling apart. If you hear whispers of a primary challenge, well, it's over, Johnny. If Joe Biden can't provide bold leadership, he will have no choice but to step aside. Live from the quarantine bubble of my recording booth, I am here to bring you news. The Biden administration rolled out today new national COVID-19 preparedness plans. That calls for maintaining free access to vaccines, masks, tests, and drugs, as well as more quickly to potential future variants. Quote, Coronavirus Response Coordinator Jeff Zeintz, we've reached a new moment in COVID-19 in the fight against COVID-19. Okay, cool. Biden uh, previewed parts of the plan in the State of the Union on Tuesday evening, including a test-to-treat program. The plan calls for boosting U.S. manufacturing capacity of COVID-19 vaccines by an additional uh, additional 1 billion doses per year, while also accelerating research and development into a single vaccine that protects against all known COVID variants. It also calls for maintaining a network of tens of thousands of sites to deliver shots, as well as ongoing investments in ensuring the adequate supply of free tests and masks. The plan calls for continued investment in emerging treatments for COVID-19, including the patients suffering from long COVID, as well as financial and mental health needs for those who have lost a loved one during the pandemic. And the plan also calls for increased investment in the initiative for global vaccine access to get more shots in arms, including supplies uh, of uh, critical needs such as oxygen. So look. Uh, uh, this is kind of the the other side of the relaxing of the mask mandates and stuff like that. If you are going to take the pain off of the average American and the way that they live their lives, then you also have to have the backstop of we're going to take care of you if you get sick. In reality, what this is, is, you know, a another commitment to uh, the, the pharmaceutical companies to continue the the train of vaccines. The one thing that would that would be horrifying for Biden at this stage would be to run out of them. Although we also still have yet to see guidance on exactly how long we should be getting shots. Is this something where we get a yearly COVID-19 shot? Is it something where we get it twice Yearly COVID-19 shot. A lot of that is 
yet to be determined, but they do not want to be seen as dropping the ball. As for some of the relaxed mandates, uh, both through the CDC and through uh, uh, the, the, the local governments of states and cities, this is simply a political reality. You know, now there's a medical reality that COVID's still out there. Case in point, your boy. But the ability for people to live their lives is something that needs to happen. And so this is their one-two punch. Folks, I'm going to be lazy over the next few days. Uh, I'm going to try to get better as fast as possible. Sucks because I had a bunch of plans for my birthday. I was going out uh, tomorrow. uh, Yesterday, I was going out to Oakland. I was going to go see Hood Slam, one of my favorite things to do in the world. I was going to go to Vegas, and I was going to see a bunch of friends there. I was going to go do another thing next week. Maybe I'll get to do the third thing at this point, but largely I'm going to be sitting on my duff watching Netflix and HBO Max and eating a bunch of delivered food. And so to do that, I'm, I'm going to need money. And, and so I'm going to come and ask for you guys to uh, help me help me uh, buy this food and uh, continue to pay for these streaming services. Now, I'm going to give you something for your money. Here's here's my bargain. If you head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com, at the $3 level, I'm going to give you two bonus podcasts each and every week. Yeah, even when I got the vid. You're going to get a podcast on Monday morning, Sunday night, called the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday Show, where we break down and try to assess what these Sunday programs are talking about, what they are programming the political world to be obsessed with for the next seven days. And then, of course, there's the late edition. That is our Thursday podcast. A reminder that we record this Friday episode on Wednesday. So the stuff that gets covered the latest is in that Patreon episode. You can only get that by heading on over to Take Politics Seriously and... uh TakePoliticsSeriously.com and signing up at the $3 level. And I guess having me catch up on a bunch of random stuff. I don't even know what I'm going to watch. I got to watch the final episode of the, the Kanye doc, the Genius doc. I don't know what else. We'll see. All right. Head on over there right now. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. As we enter the midterms, we are about to have a bunch of age-old arguments. For example, how much is a house race about the local issues versus the national mood? But what about a deeper look into the mind of the voter? Or how about one specifically at the mind of the voter? The reality is that our biases and tribal tendencies control us more than we think. Here to discuss that and more is David McRaney, the host of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Welcome to the show, David. It is so nice to be here. I'm terrified of what we might talk about. Let's go. (laughs) 
uh, well, well, first things first. Can you explain you are not so smart uh, to to folks here uh, on 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 the on the PX3 show? Just just give a, a general idea of of what you do over there. Yeah, for sure. It's a celebration of self delusion. Is like the elevator uh, log line for it. Uh, it's a it started as a book uh, that explored a bunch of cognitive biases, uh, logical fallacies, and um, mental heuristics. Those things combined become sort of these uh, collection of ways that we tell ourselves stories that explain why we think, feel, and behave in certain ways that are just not true, but they paint us as the hero in our stories. <laughs> so the simplest way to say it is that You Are Not So Smart is a exploration of how we uh, are unable to introspect in a way that we feel very confident that we can introspect. And it, it ends up being an exploration of all sorts of psychological principles that go into, um, you know, I guess if you started with how come I, I walked into this room and I don't remember why I walked in this room and then scale it way up very high to, Hey, how come that insurrection happened? So that's the, the domain is trying to understand cognitive biases, like, um, no confirmation bias and stuff like that, yeah. but trying to, to expand it into a way that we can like sort of share in a big collective humility and, uh, you can never get rid of these things. You can never overcome them, but we can build a world that looks at them in the eye and says, Oh, okay. Yes. That's who, that's who we are. That's what we do. Now, how do we get the space with all this? I think the most fascinating part about it for me is, is the, whenever you're talking about these, these topics is the idea that we are not reliable narrators of our own story. That's right. And then the, the, you know, then that means if you, if you pull out from that, that the meta is, that society is not a reliable narrator that we are we are all be everything is kind of combined and and stacked on top of it to uh, uh you know put us in in this situation where we we have no idea exactly why things happen but we sure have a lot of very strong opinions on it that's right there's a uh they call it in, in psychology it's called the introspection illusion and it's it's exactly what it sounds like we feel like we do know the antecedents to our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. When we, when we are get angry about something or we get happy about something, when we decide we're going to go watch this movie or not, when we make a purchase or not, when we have a relationship that goes one way or the other, we tend to very easily create a narrative as to the, why this happened, the, the, the cause and effect, they call them causal narratives in psychology. It's something we do naturally and easily. And we feel Another thing, which is a separate cognitive system, which is certainty. And certainty is an emotion that we experience that we don't ask for. It just happens to us. No different than stubbing your toe. You don't ask for the feeling that comes afterward. And you combine all this together, you have this high certainty and this propensity for narrative. And it can feel like subjectively, like we do kind of know our own personal subjective story of what's going on. But when you put people in experiments over and over again, we have 70 years of research and hundreds of thousands of, of documents that show that, man, people uh, are very unreliable narrators of their own story. The problem with that is if you start living a life based off of that story, um, you will do, do fine for a while until you come up against something that really challenges you. And in those moments, that's really where I try to like tell all of my stories on my podcast. Is it, are, are those moments where you realize, oh, wait. I have made decisions. I have, I have, I have walked this trail based on, on faulty assumptions. And now we have this reckoning where we have to figure out, Oh, well, why am I here? What, why is this yeah, not yeah. the way that I thought this was going to go? 
Yeah. And, and most of the time, what we do is we figure out a way to uh, convince ourselves, no, I'm right. Or, or no, yeah. it is true. Or there's a way to hedge your way out of it. Uh, our systems for justification and rationalization are very strong. So we, uh, and we tend to, we tend to only make the decisions that are easiest to justify. Um, one of my favorite studies that illustrates this well is uh, they had people, uh, they told them you, you flipped a coin and if it comes up uh, uh, heads, you've won, they tell people you, uh, this is on a piece of paper, but so they're, they're actually flipping a coin, but they say, if it comes up heads, you've won $200. If it comes up tails, you've lost $100. Um, and then they tell them which way it came up. Yeah. Uh, and that's ran- and that's randomized. And then they say, uh, okay, given which way it come up, it, uh, it came up, would you like to make that same bet again? So people and they, whatever they choose, they ask them to explain why. So people who had it come up in their favor, they say, okay, I'm ahead $200. I can risk it. Yes. I'd like to flip again. People who had it come up not in their favor say, well, you know, I'm behind a hundred dollars. I need to flip again so I can win back what I've lost. Uh, so what we know from the research is that either way it comes up, people will choose to, f- to flip again. But if you do this exact same experiment and you don't tell people the outcome of the flip, no one flips again. <laughs> and even even though we know it doesn't matter which way it came up, you should just keep flip, flip again. If I told you one way or the other, you're going to say, I, I'll take it. But you don't because you can't. Because if you don't have a reasonable justification for continuing, yeah, then the systems in the brain that make decisions choose not to make the decision until you find something to justify the decision. So we don't. And the great thing about that experiment is like everybody just wants to flip again. So yeah. give me any, any justification I can get, and I'll keep on going. And that that is a truth about us. That if you don't know that about yourself, it's difficult to navigate and understand yourself in other situations. I guess on some level, we're all just action junkies, right? Like we all, we all just kind of want the next thing to happen, whatever that next thing is. Well, you know, we're, we're motivated reasoners is what they call it. Like we, our reasoning is motivated. We're not logical, rational, sit and think about things for five hours. We're not wizards that go down in some, <laughs> uh, you know, scroll room and, and go, yeah. mm-hmm, yes, I have the answer. Uh, that's not how we are, but that's what, we, what we'd like to think. We'd like to think we're very cold, rational, uh, philosophizing thinkers who make all of our decisions and have all of our beliefs based off some sort of rumination. Uh, but that just ain't how it works. And we're capable, we're capable of those things. Yeah. We are very capable of that stuff. It's just, it's just our assumption is that that's what we're doing at all times, but that's not really so. And that's a great segue to what is the point of this particular show, which is politics. And specifically, I think <laughs> in your uh, uh, field, the idea of, of tribalism, that, that there is uh, yes. among, among the most hardwired things in the human brain is community and fear of of the other uh so let's let's start here uh do you believe in our modern age that anything has changed materially in terms of how our brains react to politics in a social media world no but the that's with a humongous caveat uh We've got brains that have been evolving for a long time and uh, very rapidly over the course of a few hundred years, we've been thrown into all these new contexts. And then here rapidly in the last uh, 30 years, we've been thrown into some very new contexts and we've we've been adapting to it as best we can. But um, I'm in the Clay Shirky camp who uh, paraphrasing him said that uh, technology doesn't 
create behavior, it lowers the cost to exhibit behavior. Uh, and oftentimes it lowers the cost to exhibit a behavior that we've been doing for a really long time. Yeah. So what you're in the middle of right now, is, we're all in the middle of a definite epistemic, chaotic, nutso moment in our existence as human beings, for sure. But more than anything, what's happened is thanks to technological innovations, uh, both in the space of like apps and services, and then also in devices and infrastructure for all that stuff to play nice together. Uh, everybody's been invited to the conversation. And that means that a lot of conversations people are joining, uh, in, uh, they're joining as the conversations going. And sometimes they're having conversations for the first time that other people have been having for a long time. So academics, um, Religious institutions, uh, uh, political elites have often just been gatekeepers for all these conversations. And now we have a huge influx of new citizens in the information world, in the idea space, who are having getting to debate and talk and group up. And that is causing us to have to like recapitulate some stuff. Um, and then on top of all that, you have all of these systems, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, which is for... Um, motivated reasoning and pattern recognition and uh, these group effects, these tribalism type things that, that people refer to it as these things are all getting uh, juiced by things like having search engines and social media that, uh, <laughs> that, that, you know, pull levers and offer carrots and sticks to all sorts of things that we do as social primates. Then the outcome has been this bizarre moment in history that we all have to live through if we're going to make it to the other side. So uh, that's a short version. I can go into deep, deep detail on all these things as much as you like. I, I think I think we will because this is among my favorite topics to to kind of a uh, uh, spin yarn about. But let, let's let's you know uh, go back to the basics for a second. The concept of tribalism in politics, like like yeah. is how would how would you describe that in terms of our, our human behavior. Like, is this just okay. an outgrowth of, uh, of, you know, uh, sure. we, we found our tribe or now I, my reasoning for how I look at the world is validated because I found other people who are saying sure. the same thing. Okay. I'll talk about it in two prongs. The short one first, uh, confirmation bias has to be laid down as a foundation. I'm sure most people have heard about this term before, but I find that it's often misrepresented uh, or it's, it's, it's often defined really bizarrely that it, the way confirmation bias works is, is to think of yourself in a tent in the woods and you hear a sound and you're like, Oh, what is that? And then you <laughs> have, so you have this visceral bodily reaction that causes, causes you to have what they say in psychology is a negative affect. So you have this negative emotional response that, and that makes you feel gross. And so you get up and you're motivated now to get up and figure out what is that sound? Cause it might be a bear. And so you take out your flashlight and you go looking. So confirmation bias is sort of like the goggles you put on when you feel a negative emotion and you want to confirm that the anxiety is justified. And that's when you go out with your flashlight going, okay, what's that? What's that? What's that? And it's very likely you'll find nothing, but it's also possible you'll find false positives, uh, false negatives, all sorts of stuff. But uh, the point is you're, you feel justified in your search with our, with tools that we have, uh, our modern tools that we have, you can have an anxiety over just about anything and go through this process. You might have an anxiety about institutions. You might have an anxiety about things that get injected into your bloodstream. You might have an anxiety about nuclear war or whatever. 
then you go searching the internet for confirmation that uh, your anxieties are justified. And what ends up happening is you often find other people who are going on the exact same search for the exact same reasons. And that becomes the, the nucleus for forming a group of people who are going to talk and deliberate and try to figure out what's going on. And that's how you get this very instantaneous group formation that takes place online. Once you have that, a whole other uh, collection of cognitive mechanisms come online that keep us together in groups. And they're, they're hugely uh, powerful because of all the things that motivate human behavior, all the drives that we have, the one that supersedes most of them is belonging. Uh, belonging goals will take over, will, will supersede almost any other goal. People will, will die for their groups. And that's because we are, we're, a social, we're not just a social primate, we're what they call an ultra-social animal. An ultra-social animal is a type of animal that survives by forming and maintaining groups. And you're willing to sacrifice. We have innate psychology that we're willing to sacrifice ourselves or others for the group if it comes to it. And it's not irrational. I mean, a human alone in the world uh, faces a lot of difficulty. But in the world that built us, in the world that the selective pressures that caused us to evolve these mechanisms, being alone was mostly a death sentence. And so yeah. we deeply fear ostracism. We're deeply affected by things like shame. Uh, and we aren't, you know, not, not all creatures feel shame. Not all creatures share ostracism. So what it boils down to is humans value being good members of their groups more than they value being, let's say, correct or accurate. And in situations where uh, the choice is between one or the other, we'll always default to our belonging goals. And um, that gets really bizarre whenever we start throwing in things like identifiers that signal that we are a member of a group or we're not a member of a group. We can get to that in a second, but that to boil it down, yeah, um, there's an enormous amount of research that uh, shows just how much we will default to uh, groupishness when it comes down to it and signals that we are in this group and not the other group. We're very, very sensitive to the concept of them. And once you can yeah. identify yourself as us and you can, that means you can identify other people as not us. Uh, it engages us in a bizarre suite of psychological mechanisms. I've long had this idea that over the last really eight years, uh, uh, we've seen this tremendous uptick in interest in in politics. Like I've been a political mm -hmm. nerd since I was a kid. And usually the only time that I could engage somebody random with a political conversation is when a presidential election was happening. It was like a four year mm -hmm. cycle where everybody kind of, turned on, you know, dusted off all their political opinions, started screaming and yelling about it. And then as soon as the election was over, everything kind of calmed down and maybe people would care mm -hmm. about the midterms. And hey, there were a few people that were really, really be dialed into it. But by and large, as a popular interest, people started caring about movies or music or or other things uh, in, in the offseason, uh, per se. That has not been the case, at least. Uh, from my perspective online, do you get the sense that there is just something inherent between the the technological element and uh, the way our brains are are wired that for whatever reason, in this moment in time, people are just more uh, uh, dialed into it? Or is it just the fact that we're more splintered out in terms of popular culture? Um, I think it's in a case of it's all these things at once, but the, what's happening is we all are all the, the content. It's more about the context in which we interact, right? So we spend a lot of our time interacting with people that disagree with us on platforms that 
ask us to very quickly assert our identity and yeah. to at all times be signaling who we are, what we are, what we like, and what we don't. And uh, there, the I think James Burke was telling me how, about how the if you we're just in a strange era where uh, if you the more secular the more secular we become and the less we feel beholden to our employers, uh, the things that identify us as us and not them become uh, difficult to sort because we're all pretty much watching the oh, same that's movies, interesting. Eating, eating the same food, wearing the same clothes, agreeing on most everything. And then, so the thing that identifies you is, well, what group are you? In? Are you in my, are you in my, how can I trust you? Cause you know, when I first meet yeah. you, I want to determine, are you an ally? Are you a foe? Are you a potential mate? Are you someone who is going to be, I have to keep a side eye on because you're going to betray me in some time. These very, these sort of primal primate mechanisms, like on initial glance, it's very difficult to sort any of this out in the modern era. So there's a, uh, there's this research by um, Henri Tajfeld called the minimal group paradigm. And right. Uh, right after world war ii he's trying to understand how genocide could, could can take place and he didn't like any of the answers or any of the, the uh, speculation at the time and he created this thing called the minimal group paradigm which was um he wanted to strip individuals of every single thing that would identify them as uh an individual and then add one little thing at a time and see at what point would people start changing their behavior to favor people in their in-group and disfavor people in their out-group so he like uh he would like um he was thinking like, okay, I'll probably, if I add like hats or uh, if I give them weird shirts or, or something, it'll be a little something like that. But it probably at some point I'm going to have to give them like an entire uniform or ask them to like, uh, they'll march in a certain way. What he found out was like, it didn't take, it was anything, literally anything that, that could <laughs> identify you as a, as a, as an individual would begin the process. He started with, uh, he would show people dots on a page. And he would say, tell me how many dots you see, estimate how many dots you see. He would just flash it for a second. And then uh, whatever people answered, he just threw that in the trash because it wasn't, it was randomized. And he randomly told people either they were an overestimator or they were an underestimator. Uh, he said, and like you, you were saying, there was too many dots or, or there were too few dots. And based off of that one thing, he would then put them in situations where he said, okay, you're now in a group of other uh, underestimators like yourself uh, and some overestimators are coming in to do this. And he did all these experiments that showed people would immediately engage in behavior that favored their in-group and uh, disfavored their out-group, even at the point where it would cause uh, like a, a, a problem. Like if you had to split money in a task, you would be willing to take less money uh, in the split as long as your the people in the other group got even less than you did. Like people would <laughs> be willing to hurt themselves as long as it hurt the other side more. Yeah. And and there's all there's a whole range of this kind of experimentation uh, the robbers cave experiment where they basically recreated Lord of the flies with some, uh, with some boys that were put into two different camps and everything. It turns out we just, it, it, what it comes down to is this identification thing. And, uh, what I, what I want to push here in this domain is that all of this is performative. Um, on most issues, there's a great psychologist, Liliana Mason. She says, she calls it civil, uncivil agreement. Like on, on most issues, we actually agree value wise. Yeah. It's just that once something becomes a signal that you are us and the other 
group is them. Uh, we will perform these acts uh, just for the sake of uh, ingratiating ourselves to our in-groups, even though we probably would agree with each other otherwise. The problem is when things get moved into the political domain. So politicizing anything is is death for the idea. Uh and it could be anything can become politicized. Once it becomes politicized, the way you feel about it becomes a signal of a badge of loyalty or a symbol of shame. And once that happens, it ruins the conversation. And there are all sorts of topics like that that we normally would agree on. But it, somewhere along the line, some weird happenstance took place that turned it political. What I'm, what I'm suggesting is that a lot of our political debates are about things that nobody actually feels politically about at all. And it's something else taking place that uh, is outside the realm of political discourse. And it just takes on the expression of political discourse, but it really has nothing to do with our politics. And that's a whole lot of what's happening online is what I'm saying. We're not actually arguing as much as we think we're arguing, we're doing a, a little display with each other in an attempt to sort out who we can and can't trust. And to sum all that up, I would say, uh, if you hear the, anybody say the word post-truth, say that we're some, some sort of post-truth yeah. world, uh, no, that's absolutely not true. We're not in post-truth. We're in a post-trust world. And it may it's not even post-trust. We're just in a, a phase now where it's very difficult to sort out who I can and can't trust. And in that, in that space... You're going to get this bizarre polarized political discourse that we're experiencing right now. But uh, most of it is performative and illusory and actually is not going to uh, map on to anything that's going to make a difference in 100 years. I would say. All right. So so to to the, the final point there about uh, the, the post trust world, I think part of that is the fact that we are now just interacting with so many more people than we would mm -hmm. normally, you know, uh, just by the social media stuff alone you are interacting with dozens and dozens and dozens of people. And if you were to grow up in a small town and then maybe move to a slightly larger town, you would never in, in a bygone era, maybe you would have a one way relationship with people on the television or radio or, or anything like that. But, but you wouldn't be able to just respond to somebody, let alone, you know, maybe a stranger or somebody that you met once that now you are in contact with forever. We don't lose touch with people in the way that we used to. But yeah. the larger the larger point, I think that's fascinating from what you said is in terms of the performative element, I think you see that most in the villainization of, mm -hmm. of political uh, uh, stuff that, you know, look, uh, politics on some level I, I, I fell in love with because it was this moment in which like decency is sort of suspended or, or lowered. So, you know, you can, you can say mean things, very professional leadery people can say very mean things about their opponent. And then usually at the end, uh, you'd be like, well, Hey, look, we disagreed. I won, you lost, you ran a good campaign. Mm -hmm. I ran a bad, a bad campaign. That was that. And of course you had some supporters that were always going to be true blue. And this was something that they were ride or die with no matter what. But now it appears sort of more the 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 norm than it is the exception. And, you know, we're recording this after the State of the Union where right. it, it feels like now, you know, f charting it back to Obama when, you know, one of the Republican congressmen screamed, you lie like and and mm -hmm. yet Nancy Pelosi performatively ripping up. You know Trump's speech uh, behind him last night. You had Lauren Boebert and and Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, yelling and chanting things during Biden's speech. It feels like villainization, the idea of like suspension of decency, because this person really deserves it. I'm going to do something that mm -hmm. everybody can understand is bad behavior, but it will be justified because of the target. 
that does seem like something that has upped, uh, uh, you know, at yeah. least in, 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 in the, even like the mainstream of, of politics over the last, uh, the last real like decade and a half, I guess. Yeah. I mean, cause we're in a, we're in that sp- this won't last because these tools, everybody will, will gain a literacy for all of this. And this will become very commonplace and boring after a while, but uh, we're in the early times of a new uh, a sort of uh, epistemic and information ecosystem. And in that new time, like the, the rewards and the costs are out of balance. So you can be may so you can get an incredible amount of reward and an incredible amount of, sanction for your um argumentative behavior right now so yeah the like um let me preface this by uh, there's a great book called the enigma of reason by hugo mercier and dan sperber and um in psychology they talk about this thing called the interactionist model which is that uh if you imagine early humans um you would need us when we develop language you have um, the best the best way to explain it is to imagine you have three people back to back on a hill and they're all facing different directions. And it's very useful if that each person can just share by communicating their perspective. That way, everybody can keep looking in every direction. You have a 360 worldview. And that is an incredible system for keeping up with what's going on. As long as we have this consensus reality, which is our combined worldview, three, all three perspectives at once. Given that... Uh, it's possible one person may have poor eyesight or one person isn't very good at explaining things or one person has never been outside before. Uh, those perspectives may not be equal in all domains. And we kind of like know that innately, but the fact that we trust each other means that we can get past the fact there may be some differences and disagreements in our bizarre Venn diagram worldview thing. So when people make a suggestion based off the fact that they're all feeling different seeing and feeling and experiencing different things, but they're adding it to a collective group worldview. There's part of tribal psychology is that reason ain't logic in the sense that yeah. reason in a psychological sense is, is uh, we could consider reasoning. Reasoning is coming up with reasons for what you think, feel and believe that are plausible to your trusted peers. So once you have peers and once you trust them from that point forward, every time you present an idea to the group, you can be biased and lazy in your presentation because you are, you trust that the group is going to sort it out and you can offer yeah. the cognitive labor to the group, which means once you group up online in ways that we've never been able to do before, uh, like I, I had a guy in my hometown, they called shroom broom. Uh, he was, he's called shroom broom. He drove a van it had a wizard. I'm not joking. This is not made up. He he had a had a wizard spray painted on the side. Nice. Uh, and I think he probably I think he probably was just like a hippie. And there was like a uh, a there was just a mythology that had formed around him. But there was a pretty dense mythology, and people would talk about him or say, "I saw Shroom Broom," and people were like, "Tell me what you saw. What did you do?" Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a now that there's a shroom room in every small town in America and they all can find each other online and become a community. And that community Mm. can feel like a real group of human beings hanging out and doing things, but they're not meeting face to face and they're not really beholden to each other in any real way. But all of the primate stuff still comes online and works the way it's going to work because you're getting all these cues to do the things you're supposed to do. So in that environment, you're trying to create a shared worldview so you can work toward common goals and solve problems and in that environment, the people who present their 
arguments for things are doing so because they hope that it the, it ingratiates them to the group like, oh, yes, you're a valuable member of the group and you're signaling that you have we have a lot of trust with us and that we're on the same page. If you don't do that, uh, if you do the opposite of that, you have you run the risk of being sanctioned and ostracized. And so we're very keyed in on it. I'm not saying anything that people aren't aware of. What I'm trying to uh, argue with is that the rewards are so high and the and the the penalties are so strong in this moment. They're exaggerated so much that a lot of what passes for political discourse in this moment is pure performance. And that's uh, when we all gather around and say how much we hate uh, person X, yeah. uh, uh, that really gives us a lot of, of social points that we can then cash in later on, or puts us ahead of the game a little bit in case we mess up a little bit. Um, and that famous robber's cave experiment, they did that right away. Like uh, they, that was two groups of kids. They put one on one side of a camp and one side on the other. And then uh, like messed with them, did all sorts of weird stuff to see how they would react to it. And eventually they just went very, you know, they eventually tried to get rocks and kill each other. They were, they almost had a war. Um, yeah. But it's, I remember one of the things that put that, that, <laughs> that stuck out to me at that experiment was that they, um, they came to their beach. One of the groups did, they came to their beach one morning and was covered in trash and they got, had a meeting about how much they hated the other group for what they had done, how they had come down there and threw trash all over their beach. But it, the experimenters were watching the whole thing. They put the trash there. They just forgot they did yeah. it. But oh, the easiest geez. explanation. It wasn't on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> so the easiest explanation, the best, the, the thing that felt good was to g use this as another way to gather together and talk about how much they hated that other group and how much they sucked. And that felt great. And the truth of the matter was so irrelevant because you get so much more out of the bonding together of the, of the belonging goals get met by arguing with each other or by about the other, by arguing by presenting arguments that the other group is uh, sucks and they do stupid things and we should go put trash on their beach. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know if I, I, I answered. Think, your, I don't know if I answered your no, question no, no, at this all. Is, this is, is no, this is perfect. This is perfect, and this is a great way to go up. Mostly because I think we've we've led ourselves to one of the most fascinating things that's happened over the past two weeks, which is that we do perform so we can belong. Which is why when we see something that is truly extraordinary, truly something that does not happen but once or twice in a lifetime, like we are seeing right now in Ukraine with a gigantic land war in Europe, something very, very rare. It was, of course, uh, uh, very predictable that all of a sudden these online communities, the reason why that was happening was because of the things that they were already performatively uh, uh, very mm -hmm. upset about. And it's it's the reason why a uh, Putin has invaded Ukraine because of whatever these talking points that I was already mad about. Like it is, yeah. it is, it is amazing. That's exactly right. Like everything becomes an example of what you're, uh, what you expect to see or what you want to see or what it will ingratiate you to your group. Like uh, every, you didn't, you knew without, you don't even have to read the, the hot takes on the conservative websites about the uh, state of the union. You know, that it like whatever, Whatever Biden said, it could, no matter what he said, it was going to be like it will confirm their yeah. take on Biden. Same thing, but also same on the other side. You don't have to you don't have to read yeah. the hot takes on the liberal side. Uh, that speech was great. Every time Trump gave a speech, already you already knew what people were going to say. Like these conversations become algorithmic and bizarre because of that. The there's an experiment uh, in psychology where they had a um, uh, 
They had this professor in the class who had a very thick um, Belgian accent and they did this long study where for uh, some of his classes, he would spring uh, tests on them and he would make them do comprehensive exams and he would be kind of a, um, uh, he would single people out and make them talk in front of the class, things that made them uncomfortable. And for another group of uh, students in a different class, he would be much more lenient and do things that were much more, uh, made the class very easy and laid back. When they would ask those students uh, what they thought of that professor's accent, the in the class that was hard, they said, I hate his accent. It's one of the worst things about him. It makes it yeah. so difficult to understand. In the laid back class, they asked, what do you think of his accent? And they'd say, the best. Oh, it's so it's so nice. One of my favorite things about him is this like beautiful, quirky accent he's got. And so, you know, this is the same thing people do in relationships. Like once you have an, emo an emotional foundation, uh, you then use that to take what is a previously neutral aspect of the world and label that aspect as why you feel the emotion. So like what was previously neutral, that accent becomes the reason why you don't like the person, even though you actually don't like the person for reasons that you haven't been able to articulate. It's just easier to articulate the salient example. And this is what happens in these political debates you're talk talking about. These new news comes along. Like that thing that happened is why I don't like this thing. And well, the truth is probably the motivation, the motivation that nobody wants to admit is uh, I'm just being a social primate and this is what ingratiates me to my community. I don't actually have a real political opinion about this that goes deeper than that, but I'm not going to express that out loud because either I don't know it or it would look really bad if I said so. <laughs> yeah. And, and you would be ostracized uh, from, from the group, which is the whole point that you're yelling things to begin with. Uh, yeah. David McGraney is the man. Uh, you are not so smart is the podcast. Uh, would you recommend any uh, specific episodes that follow oh up God, on this yes. kind of research? Okay. Um. Uh, podcast books stuff. Okay. I, I did yeah. a couple episodes, really long, deep dive episodes. I'm talking hours long with lots and lots of experts. It's not just me yammering into a microphone. It's other people talking about this stuff and me just asking questions and then trying to put music and other cool stuff on top of it. Um, I have one about tribalism. I have one about, uh, un, un, uh, civil disagree, uh, uncivil agreement. And then actually an episode that kind of brings all this together is I did an episode about masks whenever the anti-masking thing first became part of our public debate. Uh, in that episode, I sort of took all the information that we had previously talked about on the show and threw it in there. Um, but if there's one episode I would recommend to everyone, if you like want to take this beyond politics into every other domain of human interaction, it's called pluralistic ignorance. And in that episode, I do a deep dive into why the uh, Jim, the uh, Jim Jones massacre took place and what, uh, we can learn from it because there was to unbeknownst to most people, there was one person who stood up during that and said, Hey, let's not drink uh, the poison. Uh, this is just one guy and this is stupid. And uh, the, the crowd shouted that woman down and said, uh, sit down. You don't know what you're talking about. And they all drink <laughs> the poison. So I have all the researchers that you can, who are experts on that topic come in and explain why that is true and how that applies to modern politics. And I think it would be worth listening to. That's amazing. Well, we will, we will make sure that we get those links and we throw them in the show notes for people to be able to listen to them. Uh, uh, David, thank you so much uh, for coming on. We got to have you back on soon. For sure. Thanks so much, man. And that'll wrap it up for us too. 
Hey, Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. The show was edited by Brett Stewart. If you want to say thank you to David McGraney for coming on the show, then please do so. px3guest.com. That is letter P, letter X, number three, guest.com. Some news for you on the way out. Uh, our, our summations on the Wednesday show were indeed correct in the Texas primaries. It was, uh, it will now be a runoff between uh, uh, Jessica Cisneros and Henry Cuellar. Although the final count was Cuellar up over Cisneros by about two points uh, around the margin that he beat her two years ago. So what initially seemed to be an amazing showing for Cisneros uh, did not end quite where they wanted it. Also, another runoff, uh, Ken Paxton will be running uh, one-on-one against George P. Bush, son of Jeb. Of course, at the top of the ticket will be Beto versus Abbott. A reminder, if you want to email the show, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3tweets. Our Twitch is px3live. You can share this podcast with your friends, px3podcast.com. Find all your political merch at politicsmerch.com. Support me with a one-time donation, paypal.me slash payjury. My Venmo is justin-young-20, and my cash app is px3cash. You can send anything that you would like to me in the mail. That is care of Justin Young, P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, you can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. The $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week, covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. Our $10 tier gets your name right at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Including... Idris Arslani and DJ Katie Mack, Unsafe DB Levels, Niemeister, Dr. G, Admiral Flaptech, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Edmund Pluribus Unum, Pete Spicetti, 70s TV Salesman, or Spy. D really? And vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Zombie Doc, Edison, no mention on the podcast, please. Dotcom Junkie, DP4 Bongo, Jewish Lives Matter, 100 Mile Runner, Staff Sergeant Poopers, Berkeley Steven, Diana's Silent Slumbers, Katie Stetch, Adam L., Double K Ranch Shield Pinball Shop, John, the Opposable Thumbs for Dogs Foundation, Super Zoomy, Neil, Charles, Darren, Olin, and Angela, DL, Stephen, Chad, Matt, Miranda, Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Dustin, Richard D. Laser, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike, the Jen, J-Pink, and Andrew. If you would like to have your name read amongst theirs, there's only one place to go. TakePoliticsSeriously.com And that'll be it for us today. Um, I don't know who's on the show next week, but I'm going to be sleeping a lot. So uh, I'll see you in my dreams, friends. Until next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying... Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss.
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.